In today's episode, I'm going to share with you the three stages that I see most yoga teachers move through as they develop their skills as a teacher. I'll talk about the benefits and challenges of each stage and my recommendations for what to focus on during each of these three stages. Hello, yoga teacher. I've been teaching yoga for 16 years, training teachers for 10 years, and I have had hundreds of conversations with fellow teachers, especially over the past few years, beginning with my 100 conversations project, which was the inspiration for this podcast. Currently, I'm focused on developing online programs for yoga teachers that are focused on business development and continuing education. And when I create a new program, one of my jobs is to figure out exactly who I'm creating each offering for. So I've been paying really close attention to the phases of being a yoga teacher. And this episode is my current framework for naming the different phases that most yoga teachers experience on their journey to teaching mastery. Let me begin by explaining that phrase a little bit. I believe mastery is a process and not a destination. So I'm not somebody who's ever going to call myself a yoga master. Ick. I don't believe that we can ever master yoga, frankly. There are always more and more layers to uncover as we grow and learn. And honestly, isn't that why we love it? So our journey into building our ability as teachers is never complete, just like our journey into understanding ourselves and understanding the tools of yoga. But there are three specific stages that I've observed to be almost universal. In order to help you visualize these three stages, I'm going to share generalizations about how to know which phase you're in, the amount of time yoga teachers spend usually in each phase, and also the specific challenges and opportunities that are common during each phase. Now, these are just rough guidelines designed as a teaching tool, and I definitely don't take my framework to be the absolute truth. Think of it as a map instead of the territory. Use the landmarks I described to give you some insight on where to head and what obstacles might be in your way now, but understand that the actual journey is way more complicated and way more interesting. So I've broken down the teaching journey into these three phases, fledgling, exploration, and systematization. I'll go through each of these phases in detail, and I want to say that they are sequential. I do believe we need to move through each phase in order to fully experience the gifts and the benefits inherent in each one. And a common challenge, especially for the first two phases, is the desire to rush through them and get them over with as if they're not valuable all on their own. All right, so phase one, the fledgling phase. This is where we are born as yoga teachers. We graduate from yoga teacher training a bit excited, perhaps a bit overwhelmed. And depending on how much teaching we did during the training, we may feel more or less prepared to take on the role of teacher. Once we do start teaching, almost immediately and almost everyone starts to realize, wow, actual students don't behave the same as fellow trainees because practice teaching is not the same as actual teaching. Real humans with real bodies and real stories who don't have the same training and context as we do, like the practice training in teacher training, don't necessarily respond and behave as we would expect them to. So the fledgling phase of teaching is one of getting your bearings and stepping into your capacity to meet people as they are on their mats and guide them through an experience of moving their bodies. 
This includes learning how to speak about movement, how much to demonstrate, whether or not to mirror, and the balance between walking around the room and staying on your mat, or if you're teaching on Zoom, the balance between staring at the screen and demonstrating. During the fledgling phase, it would be completely normal to feel overwhelmed by the vastness of the yoga tradition and how many details we need to be aware of as we teach a class. During this time, we both gain a new level of respect for our teachers from the past, but we also tend to compare ourselves with teachers who have way more teaching experience than we do. When we play this comparison game, we will often feel inadequate for not already having the capacity to manage the practical, technical considerations of class and also holding brave dynamic space for the more subtle aspects and bringing the philosophy into class. Many yoga teachers in the fledgling phase overplan their classes, and depending on their personality, they can also get really attached to that plan. The feeling of inadequacy often leads them to try to study everything. Anatomy, philosophy, sequencing, cueing, myths, legends, Ayurveda, yin, etc., etc., etc. And this attempt to become an expert at everything as quickly as possible actually continues to feed that feeling of overwhelm and inadequacy. My recommendation for the fledgling teacher is to build a solid foundation of meeting your students at the physical level that most of them are showing up in the room for anyway. Don't try to learn everything and be everything all at once. Narrow your focus, choose one to three mentors to work with on a deeper level. Create just a few lesson plans that you practice and teach again and again, refining as you go. And temporarily let go of your vision of being like the incredibly creative teacher that you admire and instead become first a very solid teacher who deeply understands and can teach a handful of sequences in her sleep. Speaking of sleep, it's not just fledgling teachers who have yoga teaching anxiety dreams, although it may be more common in this phase. For as long as I can remember, on occasion, I still have these dreams where I'm in front of a yoga class and nobody will do what I say. <laughs> Sometimes I'm trying to teach a group that's in multiple rooms and I have to go from room to room and I just can't keep all the balls in the air. So the biggest challenge of the fledgling teacher is one, getting overwhelmed and two, not being at peace with being a fledgling teacher. Most people want to fast forward through this phase as quickly as possible. I definitely remember feeling that way. However, here's the thing. Your students actually see you as an expert already. So it's okay to allow yourself to be where you are and to build your foundation. Ironically, the most advanced approach you could possibly take to the fledgling phase is to enjoy it and to enjoy being a beginner and enjoy not needing to know all the answers yet. The other funny and kind of counterintuitive thing about that phase is that the more comfortable you are in your own skin of not knowing everything, not being at the peak of your game yet, the more authority you're actually going to project to your students. It's that sense of being comfortable in your own skin that makes people trust you. So this is definitely a time to continue to study but primarily devote yourself to your personal practice and what you can learn there. Because many yoga teachers, when they start teaching, lose a connection to their personal practice. Either their personal practice becomes just about planning their classes, 
or they kind of have an idea in their head that while they're teaching, that can be their personal practice. And please do not do that. That will burn you out so fast. It's really a race to the bottom, right? If there was just one piece of advice I could give to fledgling teachers, it would be commit to your personal practice as a self-care practice for you and not just within the context of planning your classes. I know that it is tempting during this stage to want to soak in as much information as you possibly can, but the challenge is that it's really easy to get overwhelmed and to oversaturate yourself with information before being ready for it. So your personal practice has got to be your number one commitment And then one to three mentors, one to three people who've been teaching a long time that you really resonate with that you want to learn from during this phase. But please don't try to learn from 10 people at this time. Don't try to learn 10 different things. Focus a little bit more. This is Pratyahara, the management of sensory input. And it's super, super important during this phase where you're a little bit more sensitive. You're a fledgling. You don't have the thicker skin. You really need to baby yourself a bit. So the more at peace you are with being in the fledgling phase, the more quickly you're going to move through it. And how long that really depends on your personality, your previous experiences in life, and also how frequently you teach. For most teachers, I see six months to two years for this phase of needing to focus in a little bit more, focus on movement, the physical body, the anamaya kosha, the self that we can see and touch and move through space. During the fledgling phase, I think it's very important to have another source of income. During this time, teaching is going to take a lot of energy out of you. It's something new. Your brain is having to adapt. And if you add in the stress and the pressure of needing to make a living from this and counting the number of students in your class, not just for your own ego, but for your survival it really adds a layer of stress and pressure that isn't helpful in this phase. Because for most of us, just showing up to teach is a lot of stress. Just showing up to teach is kind of a big ask. So my strong recommendation is don't give up your day job until teaching becomes second nature to you and you have learned how to conserve your energy while you teach. And that's not happening in the fledgling phase. That's really a sign that you've moved on to the experimentation phase. Phase two, experimentation. There comes a time when you get used to all the complexity of teaching yoga and you realize you're no longer overwhelmed by the task. At this stage, you've likely been getting great feedback from your students and may have developed a following of students who attend your classes regularly. You have a sense of your voice and your capacity to hold space. And you start to feel like this is truly your calling. The experimentation phase is heady because instead of feeling overwhelmed by how much there is to learn, all the different options start to feel really exciting. Now is the time to let in all the perspectives, to open the floodgates and study from as many different teachers with different perspectives as you can. I mean, don't study with people you don't respect or don't resonate with. 
but there's going to be lots of people that you do resonate with. And many of them will have very different perspectives, sometimes even seemingly opposite stances. And this is not a bad thing during the experimentation phase. You can welcome being in the gray area, welcome being in the space of stepping into the bravery of not needing clear answers to everything. During this time, you will be experimenting in your classes as well. So what you teach on a given day might be very different from what you taught the week before. And the truth is that this may cause some turnover in your students because not everyone can handle not knowing what the class is going to look like when they show up. But it, I believe it's really important to allow yourself to experiment during this time. Stay connected to your personal practice also, and use your personal practice as a laboratory to test out everything you're learning. During the experimentation phase, there's still the possibility of burnout, though since teaching isn't as depleting as in the fledgling phase, you can definitely teach more classes and potentially teach full-time. In fact, I think this phase is a great time to teach as much as your life circumstances and your personal capacity allow. What you want to watch for is teaching so many classes that you go on autopilot and you forget to be present with the humans in the room with you. During this phase, you may start to have a sense of how you would like to specialize, but if you aren't sure, I don't want you to force yourself. Embrace the experimentation. Embrace also those moments of confusion and gray space and not knowing. And within that uncertainty, watch for patterns. You'll see patterns in your students and you'll see patterns in yourself. Over time, a method, a system, or a specialty will start to emerge. This is how you know that you're moving into the third phase of teaching, which is the systematization phase. The experimentation phase usually lasts at least five years or longer. And just like the fledgling phase, there's a tendency to want to skip through it, want to push into the phase of systematization. And just like the fledgling phase to the experimentation phase, you're going to get there faster by being more present with the phase you're actually in. Phase three, systematization. All of the hundreds of experienced yoga teachers I've spoken with about their teaching eventually find that they teach the same things again and again because they see patterns in their students and in their own bodies. And there are certain practices that seem to work best for certain things. With time and with experience, they become intuitive. The patterns we notice lead to systems and our brains love systems because they represent a more efficient way of doing things. As the biggest energy user in our bodies, our brains love shortcuts and use them as often as possible. So this is where your teaching starts to rely primarily on what Daniel Kahneman describes in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, as fast thinking. According to Kahneman's system or his framework for looking at how we think, system one is fast, intuitive, and emotional, and system two is slower, deliberative, and logical. The fledgling phase can feel excruciating because you have to rely so much on your rational, slow brain. It's a lot of work. The experimentation phase is fun because you get to integrate and switch between the fast and the slow. Now, in the systematization phase, you start to rely primarily on your fast brain, which frees up energy to focus on other things and to help more people. Now is the time to choose a specialty. 
now is the time to know what you're best at and who you're best at helping and to really create some strategies in your life for letting you do what you do best and for getting help with the things you are not as good at. This is an aspect of brahmacharya, that most misunderstood yama from the eight limb system. It does on one level mean celibacy, and celibacy is one angle of energy conservation. We do not want to be throwing our energy in random directions or at random people, but we want to direct our energy thoughtfully, wisely. And this is the work of the systematization phase of teaching. The key challenge in this phase is staying inspired. You've been doing this a long time and you do the same things again and again. How can you stay connected to your excitement about the tools of yoga and about helping people? One important way to do this is to remain a student. Keep studying and learning, even if what you learn is unlikely to make massive changes in what and how you teach. If you really resonate with a particular teacher, you might get very inspired by being in their presence and just watching them teach. But the information that you take in is probably going to be relatively repetitive to stuff you already know. At this point, if you were to show up at a workshop and have your mind completely blown with new information, you'd want to be skeptical of the source because you should already have done your due diligence to expose yourself to all the different perspectives out there during the experimentation phase. Now, some yoga teachers skip the experimentation phase because they're in a system or a lineage, and so they don't go out and expose themselves to opposing ideas. And if that's the case, then that's some homework that you want to go and do because no matter how much you believe in the system and you may want to come back to it over time, it's really important to understand what other people are saying that are in direct opposition and consider those perspectives. I personally delayed my experimentation phase by being inside a system and I don't recommend it. I recommend going outside your system, even if you plan to come back eventually. However, assuming that you have done that work of exposing yourself to many different perspectives and you have arrived in this systematization phase with a solid background of experimentation under your belt, then you want to be careful about where you put your training energy, your continuing education energy. And one thing that I found to be extremely helpful is to go outside the yoga bubble during this phase. Take classes, workshops, and trainings from other disciplines. Pilates, acrobatics, psychology, anatomy, and yes, even business. These days, I personally rarely study with people inside the yoga space because it's so very similar to what I teach myself. If, if <laughs> Let me put it this way. If they're teaching something that I respect, then it's already so similar to what I already teach. So I love to go outside the yoga space and add new perspectives or nuances to my understanding by thinking outside of the normal box of how other people with similar training to me think. Instead, I want to know how people from very different perspectives think. And that is very helpful for me in seeing my own understanding and seeing my own training in a new light. I also encourage teachers who've been teaching for a long time 
to put themselves in physical situations where they are a beginner again, like taking a modern dance class or a martial arts class, because different movement disciplines have different ways of thinking about movement and different basic movements. So it's very helpful to your brain and to your body to move in novel ways. By the time you get to the systematization phase, you probably have an extremely regular home practice, and it's also likely that that practice has transformed a lot over the amount of time you've been teaching. Most of the experienced teachers I've talked to report that their home practice is either very free-flowing and playful or focused on meditation, pranayama, and very gentle restorative practices. The major pattern that I've seen and heard is that vigorous asana practices, especially those that emphasize extreme ranges of motion, are not sustainable. The quest for these extreme joint ranges of motion are actually not rewarding over the long term or even super interesting because you hit your genetic capacity after just a few years. And after you've hit that genetic capacity, there's a tendency to want to keep developing because this is just a normal human instinct is we want to keep getting better. And if better in your mind is more extreme, then eventually you're going to get injured and injury slows you down and you find yourself starting over a whole bunch. And that's just not very rewarding. So at this phase, most yoga teachers have found a pretty sustainable practice and it doesn't tend to revolve around extreme ranges of motion in the joints. And this is a beautiful thing. So most yoga teachers who get to this phase of systematization, I don't need to tell you <laughs> to focus on your personal practice because it's unlikely that you would have gotten here without it. But in case you need to hear it, in case you're feeling burnt out or uninspired, that, that is the place to go. A common challenge in the systematization phase is that the level of financial compensation often does not match up with the level of investment and dedication that you have made over the past years of teaching. So if you're in this phase and you find yourself frantically trying to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, teach all the classes, etc., and feeling this sense of uncertainty and stress, then I believe this is a perfect time to invest in the skill set of business, business strategy specifically. And you can invest in learning about business at any time. I don't really recommend doing it during the fledgling phase because you're likely already overwhelmed, but you could certainly start to dabble in it during the experimentation phase as long as you don't let it pigeonhole you into a niche that you're not really feeling or you're not really ready for yet. However, now in the systematization phase, once you have your systems for working people and for teaching pretty well solidified, you have the extra mind space, especially if you're doing some of that brahmacharya work, to devote to this new set of skills and knowledge. Yoga teachers sometimes think of business as being diametrically opposed to yoga. And I thought so too, but once I started studying business, I began to see that it's really a morally neutral framework and it can be executed in a way that's compatible with yoga or not. Ultimately, business strategy is a framework you can use to reach more people and make a bigger impact. And there's nothing in that that's inherently opposed to the principles of yoga.
Now, depending on where you are in the systematization phase, how long you've been here, you might not want to spend five years learning about business through trial and error the way that I did. So if you have a really solid system that you know helps people, it might make sense to invest in some one-to-one business coaching at this stage. And this is primarily who I work with as a coach. I have other offerings that are more geared towards yoga teachers in the fledgling phase and the experimentation phase, but most of my ongoing clients are in the systematization phase. In this phase, you have these tools and this knowledge to really help people, but you don't necessarily have the systems and strategies to build a structure for your business that's sustainable, and that's where I come in. I help yoga teachers envision what a sustainable business model would look like, and then I help them implement that vision. And to be clear, just because you're in this phase of systematization and you have a level of mastery over your vacation does not mean that you don't ever feel imposter syndrome. It doesn't mean that you automatically feel ready to be successful, especially since some of the skill sets for building a sustainable business will include things that are outside your comfort zone. I have clients who've had huge leaps from being afraid of numbers and thinking they're not good at them to feeling really empowered by knowing the numbers of their business. Yoga teachers who've gone from being really camera shy to actually enjoying teaching and talking about their work on camera. So the prerequisite here is your ability to help people, not the other skills, because that's exactly what I help with. So if this sounds like something that you would like to work with me on, you can go to teachingyoga.net slash coaching to see if I currently have any availability for new clients. You may have noticed a common theme throughout all of these phases, and that is your home practice, your personal yoga practice. Your personal practice can look a lot of different ways. It does not have to be an hour on your yoga mat. And I got to tell you, there have been many times in my life where that was not what my practice looked like. It's been walking. It's been meditation. Right now, it does happen to be about an hour a day on my mat, but that is just the current circumstances of my life. So I'm definitely not here to tell you what your personal practice should look like. But I am saying in order to grow into your leadership potential as a teacher, you absolutely must carve some sacred space into your day, that space that is for you and your growth and your self-connection. And you'll do it in your own way. You'll do it in the way that is realistic for your life. No matter what phase you're in, you can thrive and you can struggle. And if you are experiencing your current phase as a struggle, the first question I would ask you is, what does your personal practice look like right now? Is it in existence at all? And if not, what would it take to choose your connection to self? Perhaps you do have a regular personal practice, but you could check in to see, does it need to be adjusted in some way? Is there something depleting about it? Are you treating it as a way to measure up or measure down? What if you just switch to something like a fully restorative practice or add it in meditation, let go of some rigor, or even let go of it needing to be on your mat and go for walks instead? The key here is to listen to the cues and the signals from your body. 
experiment and stay curious. This is the work of being a yoga teacher. And really, it's the work of being alive. If this feels impossible to you in the moment you're in, I get it. There have been many moments in my life where I felt that way. And for myself, it's always turned out to be a story that my brain made up. And I'm not saying that is the case for you. But for me, I've learned over time that choosing presence is always a possibility, even when it seems impossible. Show up for yourself in your practice. And the more you show up for yourself, the more you will learn to choose presence, even when it's hard, even when it feels impossible. You can do this. I believe in you. And when I say that, I'm really saying I believe in myself. I believe in my lived experience. Committing to my own practice has been one of the most difficult projects I've ever undertaken and ultimately one of the most rewarding. I'm so grateful for this practice because it helps me to feel alive in a world where most things seem designed to distract me from that feeling. It's a worthy project and I'm here to support you through it. That's what this podcast is for. That's why we come back to this theme every single week at the end of the podcast. Let's do this together.